Welcome to the Cracked Pots podcast. I'm Pastor Rebecca. And I'm Pastor Chad. And this week we are on the heels of, uh, in the Lutheran Church, we have um, every three years yep. a what's called a church-wide assembly meeting. And that means we have a whole lot of people that go as representatives of each synod um, in the Lutheran church and they get together and they vote on things like a bishop. We had our, um, bishop just elected, uh, re-elected, re-elected, re-elected. Um, bishop Elizabeth, Elizabeth yep. Uh, bishop Elizabeth Eaton, um, the first female bishop and she was reelected again. So, um, congratulations to her. If by some chance she ever listens to this, I doubt oh, it. Oh, I'm, I'm sure we're re- she's a regular listener. I'm sure she is. Uh, <laughs> and uh, one of the other things that was voted upon was that the ELCA voted to become a quote sanctuary church body. Yes, and that has been met with. Um, a lot of support and a lot of consternation, let's say, and media coverage, which is always always interesting um, when the media jumps in and, and picks up stories uh, regarding the church. Right. So I think, first of all, we need to talk about what being a sanctuary church body means, because here's what the ELCA does. The ELCA goes and makes these votes and there rarely is a PR plan. There's rarely a, a plan of, okay, how are we going to actually implement this? What does this mean? Et cetera, et cetera. And they're actually pushing off onto the Synod Council what that actually means. Um, they're giving them until 2022 to define it. Yeah. And, and, and when they say what that means, we're talking about essentially putting meat on the bones. Right. Um, So we made this declaration um, as as a church body to be a a sanctuary church body. Um, And then we kind of sit and go, okay, so what what does that look like? Mm -hmm. Um, Because everybody wants to know, know, what does that mean for me? Right. Um, So 2009, something with with years ending in nine. In 2009, (laughs) the ELCA... made it acceptable to, to, op- to ordain openly gay and homosexual pastors in same-sex committee, blah, 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 blah same-sex committee relationships. Um, and then congregation said, okay, well, what does that mean? Some congregations went, oh my God, we have to call, we have to call a gay pastor, I'm out. And that, that, wasn't, that wasn't what was said. Um, so again, I think it's, 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 it's taking a step back, taking a deep breath, and looking at what these resolutions or declarations from a church-wide level mean, uh, both for us as, as a national church um, body, the ELCA, and also uh, congregationally, with, or, as I say, synodically, and then congregationally, and then a step even, even lower is, is, is individually uh, within a congregation. Um, and I, I think it's important to make those distinctions. You know, we are a, when we say we are church, um, the, our polity is set up that we have a church-wide organization, we have a synodical organization, and we have a congregational organization. And, and all of those three things work together, 
and also work somewhat independently. Kind of, I was going to say, kind of Trinitarian. (laughs) Yeah, go figure. There's like something with three in the church. Um, You know, maybe there's like a, I don't know, I seem to recall like maybe a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, Um, But... The, the, part of the problem, of course, is that when, when in something like the ELCA makes that declaration, everybody assumes then immediately that the congregational level it's going to have some huge impact or something along those lines. And the reality is that, as they then come back and state, is no congregation is ever beholden to whatever the statement, which is always interesting to me. It's, it's frustrating. Yeah, it, it, it's, on the one hand, for the people who disagree, it gives them the option to say, well, we can still stay in the ELCA and just disagree with this and not be part of it. The flip side is it creates a lot of confusion then when you walk into any ELCA church and wonder, well, is this one that actually follows the national church or is this one that's kind of doing its own thing? Correct. And, that, and, that's, and that's where I struggle in leadership um, because it, it, it is difficult to navigate. For, so, for instance, the Florida Bahamas Synod is a Reconciling in Christ Synod. Reconciling in Christ is open and affirming to LGBTQ folks. That, what that means synodically is different than what it means in a congregation because that does not mean that every congregation within our synod is open and affirming to that community. Now, whether we agree or disagree isn't really the point of it. The point in this case is that... It creates confusion. It creates confusion for people in that community um, to say that as a synod. So synodically, what that means is from a call process standpoint, from an employment standpoint process, they're following the 2009 decision to make it okay for someone who's gay to serve synodically or serve within the synod. That's essentially what that means. Um, Congregationally, though, it... It varies by congregation. We have congregations in our synod that are open and affirming. We have some that are very not open and affirming. Um, so my, my concern when, when church-wide or, or even synods make those determinations and, and, it, and it gets broadcast you know, nationally, which this, the declaration to be a, a sanctuary church body did, that does not mean that every church is open and welcoming to the immigrant community. Now we'll get into the the, the nuances, illegal part and yeah. what, and all the nuances of that. But you know, as Pastor Rebecca was saying, one of the concerns that we have as leaders in the church is you know, these declarations get made, they get publicized, but it doesn't it doesn't make a statement on an individual congregation, which can be confusing for the for the public when they come in and go, oh wow, well wait a minute, I thought this was a this was a welcoming environment for whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not all, that's not always the case. So it sometimes muddies or, the waters. Or the flip side is, you know, for, for those who don't, you know, want that, will stay away from ELCA churches Correct. or whatever. Correct. When, But the other question is, what, do, what does it mean to be a sanctuary church body? And, of course, like I said, um, part of that is, is it hasn't fully been defined what that means exactly. But essentially what happened was they're affirming a lot of the work that is already ongoing, and been being done um, within some congregations, uh, within some uh, organizations that are affiliated with the ELCA, such as Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services, uh, and is essentially saying we are going to walk alongside immigrants um, and make sure that they know their rights, 
going to make sure that uh, they have access to the legal uh, defenses that they need, the lawyers that they need, that kind of stuff that we will provide for them while they're awaiting uh, their asylum trials and, and, and hearings and, and all of that kind of stuff. And of course, what the public tends to hear is something along the lines of the sanctuary cities, which is, oh, illegals can go there and they're going to be protected and they're not going to, um, they're, they're going to defy the law. Right. Um, they're going to defy the federal law. And, that, and I think that's, that's what I've, that's the pushback I've heard most frequently, not some from within our congregation, some from outside of our congregation. Um, that's, that's, I think, what I've heard the most. Oh, mm -hmm. so we're encouraging illegal behavior. Um, and that's, that's just simply, that's not what we're doing. Um, no. and, and I understand, but to be fair, I understand the confusion. Absolutely. Because, and I know they debated the term sanctuary. I'm not really entirely sure um, what that debate was, was surrounded around. I know that a lot of it had to do with the fact that, that the term sanctuary is a loaded term in, in today's political climate, especially with it being used for things like sanctuary cities. Yeah. And, and it's, po it's possible it was an attempt, and I don't, I don't know that we can weigh in yet on whether or not it was successful, of reclaiming what the word sanctuary is. Right. Because we worship in a sanctuary, and, well, and we want the church to be a sanctuary, as in, yeah. you know, uh, a part separated from, but... Right. Well, and and there is a lot of there's a lot tied up in the name because yep. there was the sanctuary movement in the 1980s that was actually dealing with this exact same issue. It had to do with refugees from Central America, and the Lutheran Church um, was part of that sanctuary movement back in the 1980s, and it was also. Um, there were there were other sanctuary movements, of course, in in the United States. The biggest one being uh, when uh, during the Civil War, when they were uh, abolitionists were helping escape slaves, and yeah, that involved breaking the law. Um, and of course, it it has its original terminology from the medieval times when both Jewish and Christian churches would give sanctuary to people who were. Uh, fleeing the law for one reason or another, or um, it, and w would provide them the ability to, you know, be, be provided food and shelter and all that kind of stuff. I think I think I, I want to interject for a second because I, I think we get um, this is another place where I think we kind of conflate the role of the church and the role of of government in our society. Right. So the Holocaust was legal. Yeah. Um, hiding, German law. Hide, hiding Jews was, was criminalized. Slavery was legal. Freeing slaves was criminalized. Segregation was legal. Protesting racism was criminalized. The church took a stand that would have been deemed as illegal, but I don't know that we could deem it as unchristian. Um, right. And I'm not, I'm not I, I, I want to make that distinction because I think we go, we jump to, it's not legal. Okay. But does, but does that mean it fits within our faith? Right. Because they aren't always the same. Um, and again, I'm not talking illegal immigration. We're going to talk about immigrants and refugees and that sort of thing. But I, I, think, I think we need to make the distinction to say, listen, in, in, in our history, and some of it not too distant history, um, things were illegal that the church stood up against because they just weren't right. 
Um, well, and, and don't forget, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was a pastor. Right. He was he, the Reverend. Dr. Reverend Doctor Martin Luther King. And I love. I, last week I talked about Bonhoeffer. Um, Bonhoeffer and and Martin Luther King Jr. are like my two. Well, and interestingly um, enough. They are both, uh, both Martin Luther King Jr. and Bonhoeffer are the two classes that are offered in seminary um, for our um, ethics yes. classes. Is when we get to what we call ethics two, we have a choice of we can either um, take a class on ethics regarding Dietrich Bonhoeffer or we can take a class on ethics regarding Martin Luther King Jr. I took Bonhoeffer. I took, I took, I took Martin Luther King. High five. We got, we got them both covered. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> I, and I, what I loved about, um, I, I, think, I think I took, I, I took Martin Luther King Jr. because it was more um, relevant, I think, when I was going through seminary um, with uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and all those sorts of things. Right, and I was I went through seminary a little earlier than you. Right, so. right, and um, it was also a little more recent history, um, the civil rights movement, which which intrigued me. Mm-hmm. And what I what I loved about it was the well. First of all, I think I don't know that you can find so many people who are better orators um, than than Dr. King was. Um, I loved his his writing. I loved the way he's his his the cadence with which he preached and spoke, I, it was, it was, it, I found it very moving. One of his writings, Letter from a Birmingham County Jail, he wrote from prison because he was in prison for protesting mm-hmm. um, during the Civil Rights Movement. And in that letter, he basically, no, not basically, he calls out clergy for not, for not stepping in and supporting a movement um, that, you know, let's face it, it's, it, was a, it was a Christian movement um, against an anti-Christian racism, um, plain and simple, uh, white supremacy, um, and, and all of those things, just not you know, very anti-Christian. And Martin Luther King says, hey, listen, you know, we, you, again, like Bonhoeffer, you can't be silent. We have, to, you know, we have to speak up. As the church, we have to speak up for those who are oppressed and those, you know. Well, um, and if you think about it, I, I always love how um, the Romans 13 text gets thrown out, you know. Um, the irony of that being, where was Paul when he wrote his letter to the Romans? He was on a beach sipping my... <laughs> he was in jail. He was in jail. Yeah. Yep. He was in prison. Um, so what is Romans 13? Romans 13. Romans 13 is the call to uh, submit yourself to the governing authorities. Right. Now... Just to throw out there as well, not only was he in prison, there is debate in the theological community about which authorities he's talking about. Um, Given the context of everything else he's talking about as far as Romans is about um, a, a book that takes on the issue of who's more in, Jews or Greeks, um, <laughs> and is really, you know, he's kind of trying to break those barriers down between them. And so there is, there, there, there is some argument out there that the authority he is talking about isn't even Rome, that the authority he's talking about is the, the synagogue authority, right. because he went to a synagogue and submitted to a synagogue lashing um, in order to continue to spread the gospel. Um, within the Jewish community. And so the question is, was, you know, there's, you can get on the internet and find some more information about that particular 
understanding of, in fact, I think I wrote a, a blog article about it one time. Um, but, you know, again, it comes down to there, there are different ways to interpret and understand what that means. And given the fact that he was in jail by the Romans when he wrote it, it's very interesting because one of the things he says is, if you do right, you have nothing to fear, and yet here he was in jail. Right. So it's, it, it's, it's not a great argument to throw Romans 13 out there when you're, that's part of what you're, you're trying to get people to do is to not stand up and say, hey, some of these laws maybe are unjust or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And to be clear, I'm not saying that it is unjust to have border policies um, or to have policies regarding um, how people do and don't enter this country. And yep. no way am I saying that we shouldn't have laws surrounding that. And we've also said that the current system, the system that's been in place is, is ridiculously broken, has been right. broken, and it's not a matter of um, the right, the left, Republicans, Democrats, we both had a crack at it, and it's been, it's been the political football that we just right. toss back and forth. It's the hot potato that nobody wants to actually address. Um, and... And well, it's, it's an issue. Yeah, and part of the problem that we're facing right now is that um, we're having an influx, a large influx, of people who are seeking asylum. Right. And we're cutting off their ability to do that. We're imprisoning them, separating them from their kids, et cetera, when asylum seeking is legal. There's nothing illegal about showing up to a legal port of entry and presenting yourself for asylum. Now, you have to then go to court and have a hearing and decide whether or not your claim is legitimate, all of that kind of stuff. And that's primarily what um, Lutheran Immigration uh, and Refugee Services deals with. It deals primarily with the asylum seekers who are awaiting a hearing. And the program they used to have in place was they would work with communities and social services and do what they could to keep the families together and place them in a community and, you know, kind of keep checking up on them and help them uh, find uh, lawyers and all that kind of stuff so that they could Jobs, then... lawyers, schools... Right. Into, in, you, know, in, you know, working within the system, making sure they were aware of court dates, getting to court dates, yep. all that follow-up stuff. And while that was in play, um, they had, for the people they were working with, they had a 99% success rate of people showing up for court. Yep. Um, it was canceled in 2017. Yep. Um, the government decided that they, instead of spending $38 a day um, uh, per person on that program, they'd rather spend several hundred dollars a day on the detention centers per person. Right. And... With most things, let's just be perfectly blunt. Follow the money. Yeah. Uh, we're, so we're, it's ironic we're starting a three-week stewardship series. Stewardship isn't just money. Um, but generally speaking, if you follow the money, you get the answers. Um, so there's, there's dollars to be made. Private prisons. Um, yep. Private prison systems. And there, there's dollars to be made off the back of incarceration and, and detention centers. Um, yeah. let's, let's just let's be honest. Um, it's... They get money from the federal government, um, and the individuals running it then are the ones making lots of money um, off of these for-profit prisons, unfortunately. And, and, and their primary 
the primary number of, of people they incarcerate in the for-profit prisons usually are immigrants. That's their number one. I mean, they, they have no incentive to not incarcerate uh, immigrants. And, and so let's... Let, uh, Whether asylum-seeking or right. they're illegally. Right, which is more profitable than the, the Lutheran Immigration Refugee Service model where... You know, it's more cost-effective, and you're not using government, not using you know, um, detention centers and, and government funds in that in that capacity. Right. It's cheaper. It's cheaper. Um, Which so, sort of a side sidebar. Um, if you don't want, if you if you don't want to make, if if it if it just doesn't sit right with you, um, making money off of immigrants and incarceration. Check your Thrivent financial investments. Um, Thrivent, um, sorry, Thrivent, I love a lot of the work you do, but um, Thrivent is invested in some of the for-profit prison and detention center camps, um, detention centers. And for me, I, I, I struggle with that. I struggle with wh where we invest our money. Um, so honestly, I, I, I don't believe that was part of the church-wide conversation, but perhaps it should have been. Right. And... The other thing I think that really needs to be clarified is that uh, when Churchwide made this, they came out and they specifically stated, um, we are not encouraging anyone to break any laws. We want simply to state that we will walk alongside immigrants in their, you know, in this process. And let's face it, becoming a legal citizen in the United States these days is not easy. Um, our bishop is, uh, finally got his citizenship, I think it was 10 or 20 years after it he, took a, he came here. It, it took it was, a long time. It took a really long time. It took a lot of money. I think he said it took over $10,000. Yeah. Um, which I know right now is also the point of contention of only people who can afford to come here should be allowed in. Um, and yeah, <laughs> which uh, I look at, I look at my ancestors and go, yeah, they didn't have a dime to their names when they came here, but, um, that, yeah, it, it I'm not going to get into that cause that starts getting into the political realm, but just suffice it to say, um, scripture, so scripture, scripture over and over and over and over says we're to care for the immigrant, we're to yes. care for those on the margins. We're and to we're to for care the for the prisoner. Right. Correct. So legal or illegal, we are still called to care for those who are who have broken the law. And maybe and maybe, maybe this and I never really made this connection before, like in this in this fashion. So and maybe it's because we were talking about Holy Week. Um, the depiction of and the idea of Jesus being imprisoned and beaten. Um, I think most, most of our listeners would probably agree, you know, when you look at what, of, of, the, of the pure abuse that Jesus went through, that it was inhumane. Mm -hmm. It was inhumane. Nobody deserves to have that kind of treatment. Nobody deserves to have that, that type of treatment and that, that, that type of dehumanization. And, okay, so maybe we're not doing the whipping part of it um, in our prison system and in the, in the detention centers, but... Uh, and, and, and again, we're going to get back to the, well, they broke the law, whether we're talking criminals or immigrants, and they, get what they, deserve. They, and they shouldn't get air-conditioned 
lazy boy, lazy boy chairs and cable TV. Okay, but there is a level of, of decency with how, we, how we're called to treat people, and you know, part of that goes back to you know, the UN resolutions on how we're to care for people and... Right, the, the, uh, the human rights violations yeah. and things that, that tend to go on. But beyond that, as, as, as people of faith, you know, again, our, our scriptures call us over and over and over to care for the immigrant. And then I think we get the, the, it gets muddy when we start talking about what that means and what that looks like. And my, I think my, what, what hurts right now is this blanket dehumanization for anyone from another country, whether they're legal or not, whether they have legal status or not. And, and, I, and I struggle with that. And then we get all these, all these myths of what immigrants in this country you know, have done or don't do. And frankly, they're, it, it's, it's a misrepresentation. So I came across this the other day. So the myth is that immigrants are taking over our country, because I've heard that. Mm-hmm. Um, immigrants actually only account for 13.7% of the total U.S. population, which is basically within historical norms. You hear immigrants don't work. 72.5% of immigrants believe hard work um, is how you succeed in America and are responsible for half of the total U.S. labor force growth over the last decade. Immigrants take American jobs. That's another thing I hear a lot of. Um, 7.6% of immigrants were self-employed compared to 5.6% native-born Americans, and they founded more than 40% of Fortune 500 companies. Like, whoa, that's, I mean, that's pretty impressive. Um, and I know, so I worked in the Christmas tree industry uh, for a Christmas tree grower prior to seminary. We were part of what's called the H-2A and H-2B immigration program. It's a legal nine-month uh, work program. So we would have workers from Mexico come. That program mandates um, how you hire, what you pay, and all of those things. Part of the stipulation for that worker program is you must advertise your work, your job openings, in like local papers in the surrounding in your area and surrounding areas for so many days there's like very specific specifications we did that in my oh wow how many years did i work there I, let's say five years I, I don't i don't know in the five years i worked there other than the owner's son and his friend we had two people with three people apply we had two people show up for the job, and by the end of the first week, we were down to zero. Um, so this myth that you know, immigrants are taking American jobs is it's kind of not true either. Um, now, they not take any, that's not, maybe that's not the case, but you know, there's, 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 a, there's a labor force, and particularly within our agriculture industry, um, that migrant labor, immigrant labor, um, is really, really drives and now, the sad part is it's often, it keeps the price down right? Um, because they don't pay fair wages. Now, with the H-2A, H-2B program, the wages were dictated. Um, and they made well, and, and that becomes also the question um, in terms of, well, 
why are Ill illegal immigrants coming here to work? Well, because they know they can find work, which means there are people employing illegal immigrants, and we don't go after the people who are creating the job market um, for for Ill illegal immigration. Right. Um, but that's you know um, that's that's another another side to it. Well, the other the other myth is that immigrants take advantage of welfare. Right. So 62% of immigrants aged 16 and older were employed compared to 58.1% of native-born Americans. They work at a higher rate. Yeah. Well, where do they go? <laughs> where do they raid when, they, when they're raiding for yeah. illegal immigrants? They go to the places of work yeah. um, where, where they're working. Um, and they also, and this is not a popular thing to point out, but they, in 2000, I think it was either 16 or 17, paid $11 billion in income tax um, at the, um, I think it was the state level, not at the federal level. Um, but they were, you know, they were paying into taxes that they then actually were not getting the benefit of because they couldn't, they didn't qualify for, for any of that stuff, but they were paying into it because they thought, well, maybe this will help with my case. Um, and they're, I don't think they're doing that anymore because they're afraid of getting caught now. Um, but, you know, it, it was, you do have people, and should they have come here illegally? You know, no, they shouldn't have. They, they should have gone through the proper channels, um, should have done the proper, proper things. As my question is, though, what, what drives somebody to be that desperate? To, that, that you're willing to risk what what the consequences are um, in order to do that. Now, are there bad people that are coming as well? Of course, there are. Um, there, you're going to have some some bad people that that make their way um, through through. But I think in one of the the last rounds that we went through of the caravans or whatever that came up, there were there were like two thousand people made it to the border. I think they found 40 of them were here for not so awesome purposes. So out of those 2,000 people, you had 40. And that, you know, that they determined were, they flagged were bad potential. people. Yeah, they flagged, they flagged those as, as very bad people and, and um, sent, them, sent them packing. And part of the problem, too, is that what has happened um, in Central America is the fact that, um, again, we had this problem back in the 1980s during all the civil wars and things that were going on, and we did exactly what we're doing right now. We incarcerated, and we deported. Right. And they learned how to be part of a gang and took how to be part of a gang back to Central America and are now, of course using their newfound skills to terrorize the people who are now, who are migrating now, um, 40 years later. Yeah. And it's, it, it's a cycle. It's a cycle. It's a vicious cycle. And we aren't ever dealing with what some of the root causes of migration are. And, right. and there's the reality too, when you look at, when we talk about, okay, what, you know, how do we stop migration? How do we do things? Our faith is a migration faith. Abraham was told to migrate. <laughs> he was told to leave his country. He was from um, Ur of the Chaldeans, then moved up into Turkey and Haran, and was told to leave there and go down into the um, land of the Canaanites. Um, we have a migrant faith. 
That's the, the, our, our founder was, the whole thing was based on him moving into a land that was not his land. Little baby Jesus off to Egypt. <laughs> yep, to, to escape. But of course, there were not the same immigration laws back then, right. um, which is, of course, what we meet whenever we, we talk about that is they go, well, but it wasn't illegal to do that. They did it legally. And it's like, well, that's because they didn't really have a concept of, of secure borders or something along those lines. Everything was pretty much just the city. And you, you worried about fortifying the city from enemies, but you didn't really worry too much about the average person walking in and out. I think, I think what troubles me the most is our willingness to just dehumanize people. Yes. Um, and our willingness to just um, take, just take the humanity out of the equation. And, and I, I have a hard time doing that. Um, and you know, I, I, spent, I spent some, I spent, you know, a week in Mexico doing mission work um, and met a family who the husband crossed the border illegally. Um, mm -hmm. and when he explained it, he's like, he's like, I, it was the last thing I wanted to do, but I had, I, I, I had no opportunity here for my family. And so that, that sort of started a discussion with our group that night over dinner about what it means. You know, what would you do? What would you be willing to do to provide or protect, um, for your family? And I think we all draw that line differently, and luckily for, for the overwhelming majority of us, certainly in our context, we don't have to make those tough choices. Um, we don't have to make those do. Would I break the law to, um, to feed my family? Would I break the law to keep a roof over my family? Would I break the law to make sure that my, my, my daughter isn't going to be raped right. and... Um, possibly murdered by right. gangs of thugs that, that roam the streets. Yeah, and, and the, those, those are difficult decisions. And I think you know, with, with the church-wide declaration to be a sanctuary church body really comes down to is one, affirming the humanity of, of people that, that aren't um, Americans, I guess, I guess is the best way to put it, um, to sort of you know, recognize their humanity and, and, well, and be willing to, out of compassion, walk with them and help them through the process in a humane fashion. And I, it's, I, we, we've, we've gotten to a point in society where we're too willing to dehumanize someone based on race. In, in, based in order on to justify bad treatment. Based on sexuality, yeah. based on political leanings, to justify being a jerk. Yeah. Um, I, I, mean, I mean, that's... And, and, I, and I, I, you know, I, I'm guilty of that more than I'd like to be. It's one of my weekly confessions I talked about this Sunday. Because um, sometimes I, I, I get so frustrated. And, you know, I have to remind myself to take a step back and say, okay, so why? Why am I frustrated? Why is this thing a thing? And I just think we need to, we need to be able... And as people of faith, it shouldn't be that hard. And I recognize that it is because, like I said, I, I'm not I'm far from perfect. That, you know, let's look, at the, let's look for the humanity in someone first. And Even on the cross, Jesus was looking at the humanity of those who had broken the law. Um, if you think about the thief on the cross right. who was suffering right alongside him and 
said, hey, I mean, that thief had no, no problem saying, hey, I deserve to be here. Said, I, you know, I, I did a wrong thing, but will you have mercy on me? And Jesus said, nope. <laughs> I got my own problems, dude. I'm hanging here too. No. Jesus was like, you'll be with me in paradise. You yeah. will be with me. Yeah. And, and just like I said, I always am remembering that even when somebody's done something illegal, has done something wrong, Jesus still calls for us to take care of them, even if they're, quote, the prisoner. In fact, he specifically states, take care of the prisoner in, in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, it's part of that whole, whatever you do the least of these, you do it to me, and he includes prisoners in that. If, he includes immigrants, and he includes if prisoners. That, if that statement is true, we're in a lot of trouble. Yeah, we are. I, I mean, I mean, let's let's just be let's just be perfectly blunt. Um, if that statement is true, and you know, there's there's plenty of scripture that that would back that statement. Um, we're in a lot of trouble um, because you know, when it comes to the least of these, uh, I, and that that's not to say that that the church and 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 society in general isn't generous in giving. That, I, I don't believe that's overwhelmingly the case. But I think we can point to enough examples where, and, and, and you know, immigration right now being one of them, where we're, we're so willing to cast, cast aside people, um, not listen to their story, um, and just paint with a broad brush and say, you don't belong here. Um, well, and unfortunately, that that spills out. I've got I've got a good friend who is um, uh, uh, Hispanic, and he's a he's a war veteran. He's a citizen, lived here his whole life, um, and and served his country. He gets spit on and told to go home on a regular basis because of how he looks. Yeah, and that to me just it's how on earth can we call ourselves a Christian nation when that is how we behave? <laughs> um, and it, it just, it's, it's hard. And it's... And can, we, can we just... Re- well, Jesus didn't have... Jesus, Jesus wasn't, uh, wasn't pearly white. <laughs> no. Um, so, I mean, we, we, worship, we worship a brown-skinned Jesus. Yeah. Um, and then... Okay, so maybe he didn't speak Spanish. <laughs> um, Spoke Aramaic. But you know, the reality is, you know, we've 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 kind of gotten into this realm where um, we we the treatment of people with 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 darker shades of skin, um, Which particularly let's, if they let's, have an accent. Yeah, and, and let's be fair, treatment has never been good, but it's it, it's. It's getting worse in some ways. Um, I was looking at a some some statistics, some polls the other day that that really bothered me. Um, in 2014, only five percent of mainline Protestants—that's us—thought um, it was okay to discriminate based on skin color. Do you know what that number is today? I think I'm going to throw up. Twenty-two percent of mainline Protestants think it's okay to discriminate based on skin color. 
five years. How's that possible? In five years, that number has jumped from five percent to twenty-two percent. So, I, I don't. I don't know if. I don't know if that makes me want to quit my job, <laughs> or if it makes me more. Um, more steadfast in why I feel called to this ministry. God, that number is disgusting. Yeah, it's horrible. Um, it, 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 it's, it's horrible. And, and it's one thing, so, so hate and bigotry is never okay. Let's no. just say that. But when it's done either systemically. In the, systemically or in the name of faith and by people of faith, it just makes me wonder what the hell you've listened to in the pews for, for, for well... For your lifetime. For your lifetime. Um, because it, there, there's nothing in Scripture that says that that's okay. Um, now, I, Pastor Rebecca and I have both read a book. Um, oh, a, boy, you're going there. A recent publication. <laughs> um, and you'll probably hear more about this in, but basically the, the book is calling out some of our practices as a church that are insensitive to people of color. And I don't want to get into details, but it's an eye-opening book, and I know that we both read it and struggled with it and went, oof, wow, I never thought about that. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm sure that in some way some of that plays into, into those numbers. Yeah. But the reality is there's nothing... There's nothing holy. There's nothing scriptural. You really don't have a leg to stand on in your faith um, when you look at someone based on skin color. And it, it, it's, it's, it just doesn't fit. It doesn't align with scripture. I had, I had a, 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 a member, a dear member, that he was racist. <laughs> I loved him to death. Um, and tried to, you know, educate where I could. And he was in, he helped with, with her, with family promise, uh, at the congregation I served. And one of the reasons he was hesitant was to be blunt, his race, his racism. Um, and while it was still there, it was still prevalent. Um, he talked about growing up in inner city Detroit and, um, and, and what that was like for him at that, at that point in his life. So I certainly understood um, why he felt that way. I didn't absolve him from not moving on. And, and, and um, so, I, I mean, I understand people's lived experiences, but... Well, the other question that we have to get at is there's, there's the lived experience. And I know a lot of people have had a lived experience of, hey, I've, I've been around the, this particular community or whatever, and here's what I witnessed, saw, et cetera, et cetera. The question that doesn't ever usually enter into that experience for um, you know, someone who has, you know, saying, oh, well, you know, they were shooting each other and blah, 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 and, and that's just their culture. What fostered that culture? How, how did that culture arise? And at least in, in the case of black communities, it's because we put them in that culture um, as, as white people. And systemically. System, yeah, we, we systemically, um, it, I always think about the fact they did not have the right to vote until 
the 1960s. Right. Um, which means basically only from my lifetime. I was born in 73, so, you know, that they, they had just gotten the right to vote about the time I was born. And when I think about that, I'm like, holy cow, you know, how much change can go on in a single generation? Yeah. The, the amount of what had happened prior to that um, and continued to happen, even though, okay, so they got the right to vote. Were they able to buy homes in nice neighborhoods? No. They were not allowed to buy homes for a very long period of time. That was still going on the 80s and the 90s um, in my lifetime of there was definitely discrimination of you, you were not allowed to buy in these, you know, in, in these areas. And it continued to oppress. It continued to, they didn't get necessarily the jobs, which is why eventually they started affirmative action, which of course was very controversial because then you have people that are complaining that, well, this, uh, you know, this person who's not qualified took my job because they're, because they're black, period. And how's that fair? That's reverse discrimination, blah, blah, blah. And I mean, we can get into it, 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 this. Should probably be a whole nother podcast. It will be of 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 the ways in which systemic racism has really hampered um, minority communities and their ability to to get out of of, of their situation. I mean, they were they were forced into ghettos. Essentially, they were forced yeah. into poverty. They were forced into. If you look at the percentage of people in poverty, white people is about eight nine percent um, live in poverty. It's twenty two percent in in black communities, yeah. and um, that's to me that says not something about the you know black people in general. It says. What is our country? How is it? How is it formed? What has it done that it has? And if you've ever gone through, we used to when I was in on internship, we did a, a thing with our youth where we brought people in and said, and it was basically to learn how systemic poverty works, yep. how how hard it is to get out of. And I remember one of my students who, you know, it was essentially. One of the things they did was they took a Monopoly board that was like already in play and said, okay, you have this much money and here's the board. Here's everything's already owned by. You ain't getting Park Place. Yeah, you ain't getting Park Place. Um, That's already owned by blah, 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 blah. Here's your money. Oops, you accidentally worked on Park Place. Give me all your money. Now you're broke. Yeah. Um, Some of the other things were, okay, here's the amount of money you have. Here are the things now that you have to decide. Um, are important in your daily life, money, uh, uh, food, or, um, uh, you know, buying your kids their school supplies, et cetera, et cetera, all that kind of stuff. And this is the job you have, and this is what it pays. One of my students, when they got done, they just looked at me, and she, she just said, I want to be an adult. <laughs> I said, what? She goes, I, she goes if, this, if this is what it's like, I don't want to be an adult. She goes, there's no way to get out of this. She goes, how do you get out of this? Yeah. And I think that's one thing people, yeah. And that's, I think one part of, of systemic poverty that people don't realize. Um, and you know, we even gave them, a uh, and, and you know, a thing, uh, classified ads saying, okay, look for a job. 
well, none of the jobs that they were looking for were going to pay for the things they needed. They were all barely minimum wage, if that. Um, The ones that paid more, you need an education for. They're like, well, I'm not qualified for that job. I'm not qualified for this job. Oh, yeah, your education is going to put you in debt and... Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so, so there's there's three there's three resources to lift up around this sort of the the, the poverty issue um, and systematic systematic issues. One is the New Jim Crow, a book called The New Jim Crow. Um, another one is it's called Stamped from the Beginning. Um, the New Jim Crow I can't get through. I read it, I read a chapter, and then I put it down to get mad. Um, Stamp from the Beginning is a book that actually my wife read. I have not read it yet. It's, it's, it's a pretty thick book. Um, it looks a little daunting, so I haven't tackled that yet. And if you're not necessarily the reading type, there's a documentary on Netflix called 13th, um, about the 13th Amendment that is really good. Um, and it sort of pulls in some of the stuff that you, that you pull from the two books. So if you're not willing to invest in a book, um, you can invest, you know, I think it's a half hour doc or an hour documentary um, on, on that topic. So let's get, let's get wrapped because we haven't done a podcast for a while and you can tell because we got, we got excited here. And we, we, yeah, we, um, we, we kind of went off the rails a little bit and yeah. I don't know that we, we kept on topic exactly, although these things are all linked. They are all linked. The, the, the immigration issue, the racism issue, all of that stuff is, is intrinsically linked yep. um, in how we view other people. And again, that idea of, well, you know, illegal immigrants, et cetera, don't deserve our compassion, don't deserve um, our, uh, our, our kindness. And at least for me as a Christian, I, I, can't, I can't go there. Um, that's, that's for me not, not an option as a Christian. It's, I, I realize that some people have done some, some really bad things, and yet Christ still calls us to care for them. Somebody asked me Sunday after worship, do, oh, I, still, yeah. do I still have to love Jeffrey, Jeffrey Epstein? And I didn't answer. <laughs> 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 because that is, um, that, that, that is a tough one. It's hard. It's horrible. I mean, um, it's, it's one of the worst crimes it's worse than murder in my book. You know, it's, you were asking about, are there, are there crimes that are better or worse or whatever? And to me, that one's, that one's, that I, one's the, the absolute it's, worst. It's disgusting. Um, um, and, and I don't, I don't, uh, I, so, so I, I guess, I guess what I would say is, um, I don't know. I don't know in, in the case of Jeffrey Epstein, but I do know that right or wrong, we do have a way we're supposed to treat people. Well, and, and I have to always... And I struggle with that. I, I will fully admit, I struggle with that in cases like this. Yeah. But when, we, when we're talking about immigrants, when we're talking about children, when we're talking about you know, how Jesus, you know, Jesus called to care for the least of these, it's, it, pardon the pun, it's pretty black and white. You know, we're, we're supposed to care. Um, and we have a responsibility as people of faith to care. And essentially, that's what the churchwide organization stated this past week in Milwaukee, that we as, as ELCA Lutherans are called to compassionate care for those, in this case, for the immigrant community. Now, it doesn't say that we need to break laws. It doesn't say that we should support the breaking of laws. 
but it does say that in the process of doing that, there's a way to be humane about it. There's a way that we can that we can stick with our Christian witness as a church, as an immigrant church. Let's be honest, you know, Lutheranism wasn't wasn't born in the United States, um, but we have a, we have we have a level. Um, of accountability as people of faith, that how we're how we're called to care for people, um, and I would say about Jeffrey Epstein is whether you want to quote love him or not, we were still you're still called to care for him in some fashion. From the standpoint of no, he deserved to be behind bars, <laughs> he deserved to be in jail. Yeah. Did he deserve to be fed? Yes. You know, just you know, basic human things. Did he deserve it? Now, did he give that to other people? No. That's hard. But that's a hard one. It, but but sad, you know. But my Christian faith says yes. He deserved to to have the basic necessities of life still locked away, so he can't harm other people ever again. But did he deserve? to be fed, et cetera. And, yes. let's, and let's not equate, let's, let's be clear, like we're not equating um, what Jeffrey Epstein did with crossing a border oh, goodness, or no. seeking asylum. It's a misdemeanor or, offense, by the way, Yeah. to illegally cross the border. It's a misdemeanor offense. Um, <laughs> I know a little something about misdemeanors um, based on my previous marriage <laughs> um, versus felons. And and really, you know, the the misdemeanor, you, you don't get more than a year in jail. Um, it's usually, I think, a thousand dollar fine or something along those lines. I mean, it's it's it's. If you want to look at the number of people in this country who have misdemeanors on their records, it, it, it's pretty high. Yeah, and, I, I I just I want to I want to affirm the work that that the Lutheran Church has been doing. Yes, um, they've done a lot of really really good work around immigration, particularly with Lutheran Immigration Refugee Services. They have a high success rate, um, and that program or really... they did. They did. Um, that program really has been sold out in every sense of the word um, for profit and inhumane treatment. And I think as people of faith, I have a hard time... As a person of faith, I have a hard time swallowing that pill um, that, profit, that profit takes the place of humanity um, because I don't think that that should be the case. Ever. Unfortunately, that is what happens more often than not. But that's a whole other topic. And as far as us as a church, our mission is not affected by um, is not affected by the churchwide decision to be a, to be a sanctuary a sanctuary church. I, our, our call, our messaging is going to be the same. Well, technically, technically I mean, we have already been a, a sanctuary church here. People just don't know that they were. Um, we, we had a family from South Africa who was here on a business visa. And their son helped us with a ton of stuff, was very involved in our youth ministries. In fact, he went back to South Africa to pursue not only becoming a... Um, uh, pastor, but now actually is becoming a Lutheran pastor because we had such an influence on his um, theology that, that he couldn't deal. He, he couldn't continue in the Reformed Church. He he loved Lutheran theology, but his parents um, had um, 
had a business visa, and their business visa got revoked because the government decided that their company that they were running uh, was not profitable and big enough to fit the standards for the United States. Um, they were much more friendly toward big corporations and the small businesses were, were really getting harder and harder for, for incoming immigrants to, uh, to do. So they had, they basically, they, they lost their business visa. Now, they, they appealed and appealed, and during that uh, appeal process, their attorneys told them it was fine to continue to stay in the United States while they appealed that process. Well, the r rules changed. Suddenly became not okay for them to stay. But they still, they still had the business, so they had to take the time to sell the business to get rid of the stuff. Um, so technically, they were here illegally. Um, they lived over where you and I lived for um, some time, over at Coquina Cove. Um, and they left there in their last five months. They spent living in the woods. But they still came to church. Because they had to take care of stuff before they went back. Now, they're not allowed to come back for 10 years or whatever it is because they overstayed their visas. And let's face it, most, um, most illegals have overstayed visas. Yeah. And this was their case. Pastor it Rebecca was, did air quote illegals on that just for the record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Um, but they do. That's, they, they overstay their visa. They're not, you know, they, they don't stay as long. And in this case, they, they overstayed their visa because they had stuff they still had to take care of before they felt comfortable going back yeah. um, to their lives. And granted, they'd only been here a couple of years. It's not like they'd been here 20-some years and then suddenly, you know, they have to go make a new life. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, we, in, we, we were a sanctuary church because we allowed them to come and worship with us and treated them exactly as we would have treated anybody and loved them and... So let's do that. Yeah. Let's um, do more of that. Yeah, we didn't... We, we didn't... No, I don't think anybody in this congregation kept coming up to them going, so what's, the, what's your legal status right now? Yeah. Um, they also... Let's say they, they looked white. So <laughs> there, the, 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 there was that too. But... Um, those are, you know, what does it mean to be a sanctuary church? Well, guess what? We've been one. We, we, we quote, harbored illegal immigrants. Let's be a sanctuary away from the hate and division and a sanctuary of love, and let's see what happens. Yep. Let's, just, let's just go there. Yep. That's all I got. No, you had a sermon or something about let's just love. Yeah. yeah. All right. Something like that. Well, um, hopefully we'll get to another one next week. It's been a few weeks. Yep. Um, but anyway, um, until then, um, have a good week. Mm -hmm.